millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted. Welcome again. My name is Todd Nettleton. I hope you're not just a listener today. I hope we can recruit you as a prayer partner for brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing persecution. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from Brother Philip. He's going to help us understand how trauma affects those who are persecuted and how VOM is directly responding to help meet this need. First, though, we're going to hear from Steve Lisby about how you can pray about a situation in Nicaragua, a situation that is ongoing even as we speak. Steve is the Risk Management Director with Mountain Gateway. It's a ministry that helps train and send gospel workers. Mountain Gateway helped Nicaragua recover after a hurricane. That good work and the contacts that they developed led to the Nicaraguan government granting permission for Mountain Gateway to hold several large evangelistic events last year. More than a million people attended these events. The final one was held in the capital city. It had more than 300,000 people there. But Steve Lisby says all the goodwill that Mountain Gateway experienced suddenly changed. December 12th, we got word that one of our national directors had been arrested. And then in a span of just a few days, uh, his wife was arrested and uh, nine more of our national pastors that uh, were involved with these campaigns and involved in the ministry there uh, were all arrested, placed in prison. No one has been able to speak with them since then. They haven't seen their families. There was finally an attorney approved just a few weeks ago to uh, represent them, but she's still never been able to see them or get any case files or anything like that. So we've had no contact with them since uh, the middle of December. What are the charges? Like what, what does the government say they were doing that would be worthy of arrest? That's kind of a moving target. Some of that has changed since December, but the latest notice that they put out, which was, I believe, January 17th, accused us of money laundering and organized crime. And so we're still all a little... Flabbergasted. <laughs> that's a good way to say it. Yes, we are. We're flabbergasted that this is all transpired and still not even sure what all is really going on or what the bottom line will be when they actually do some kind of official charges. Mm-hmm. I understand there's three Americans also that were arrested. Yeah, they were charged. They have not been arrested. They have not been arrested. Okay, so they, they were not charged. in Nicaragua. Ah, okay. Uh, at the time this all went down, but uh, our founder, Brett Hancock, and our missions director, Jacob Hancock, and Jacob's wife, Cassie, is a wonderful young lady. So, but they are not in Nicaragua. They at are this not. point in time. Okay. They are not. They that, are. That's good to know. Yeah, no one. So one of the things we want you to do as a listener this week is to pray uh, for these 11 Nicaraguan pastors and wives and family that are going through this trial right now 
pray for God's protection over them, pray for grace as they suffer through this time. Are there other ministries that have gone through this sort of charges and allegations and then come out the other side and are still doing ministry? Or is the typical pattern the ministry gets shut down and they have to quit? The Nicaraguan government has exiled hundreds of faith-based workers, uh, Nicaraguan citizens, uh, just even in the last few years. Oh, my. And I don't know what the current number is. I've heard as high as 3,000 nonprofit organizations since 2018 that have been expelled from uh, Nicaragua. They will cancel their registration, which means that they are no longer a functioning entity in Nicaragua, and then they have to leave. So you're not alone in this challenge, but that doesn't make it less of a challenge. That's right. It's our people. They've never had this happen to them before, and— there's large numbers of people who have been exiled. We're expecting that may very likely be the same thing that happens here. And so we're working on this side. And then also we're trying to garner support in the faith-based world to make sure people are aware of this so they will pray. Uh, we need that support Absolutely. as much as anything right now because— uh, God can do anything. God can do anything. As we're thinking about praying for, obviously, we have 11 in prison. We have their families who don't haven't seen them, don't know what's going on with them. We have your ministry staff here in the U.S. who are trying to help and trying to work through this situation. Just give us some specific ways that we can pray this week for Mountain Gateway, for the ministry, and for this particular situation. First and foremost, our heart's desire— is that the Lord will be glorified in all of this. We said yes to his calling. We said yes to his purpose. And so we want that to be fulfilled. But at the same time, it, it can be hard for us. Right. Our flesh doesn't like it. First and foremost is that the Lord will be glorified. Secondly, that his purposes will be accomplished. Thirdly, for our people in Nicaragua, that they would be released. We pray for their health. We pray for the wellness, both spirit, soul, and body. And then we pray that, uh, you know, we would have favor with the government uh, in the U.S. and in Nicaragua to get a resolution sooner rather than later. We, we really would not rather this thing go on for a year or two years. You know, the, yeah. if it's going to happen, let's get it, let's get it done and get past it so we can get back to kingdom work. Amen. I do hope you'll pray for these gospel workers who are jailed in Nicaragua and pray that the gospel will spread. When our brothers and sisters are persecuted for their faith, the effects can last a long time. A guest that we're just going to call Brother Philip is going to help us better understand the trauma that persecuted believers can face. Brother Philip used to serve as a mental health coordinator in the U.S. prison system. He is working on his Ph.D., and he brings all of that expertise to his role as a field minister for the Voice of the Martyrs in West Africa. Maybe you feel like it's common for people in our country to throw around the word trauma kind of casually. Brother Philip understands, and yes, we can be guilty of overusing that word without understanding what it really means. 
We are definitely living in an age where we use a lot of hyperbole in kind of our normal speech. And that's kind of a product of kind of our social media environment. In order to get noticed, you have to sometimes exaggerate symptoms. And so I'm sure that a lot of your listeners have heard the word trauma. They may have said that they've been traumatized. But the sort of trauma that we see among persecuted Christians is an emotional form of distress that really interrupts their ability to do life. It affects all aspects of their lives, everything from their ability to work. Sometimes a traumatized individual might be scared to go out in their fields afterwards, even if it's safe. It's going to certainly affect their physical health, their emotional health. Uh, You'll see uh, them experiencing nightmares, difficulties in their relationships. And then certainly there's a spiritual side to trauma. So here in the field, it's very much holistic the way it uh, affects people. You mentioned the spiritual side of this. And I think, you know, as we think about, and I I mean, as we're recording this just a few weeks ago, there were attacks on multiple villages in Nigeria, houses being burned down, people being attacked with machetes, people seeing their loved ones attacked with machetes. How does that affect the spiritual walk? I mean, the first question that comes to my mind, obviously, is like, if God loves me, how did this happen? How could he have let this happen that my wife was assaulted, that my child was killed? Is that something you see? And how do you help Christians wrestle with that question? Yeah, it really can have an acute impact on one's spiritual life. And if you don't mind me sharing kind of a a vignette, a story of something I actually saw in the field Uh, This was one of the more brutal attacks that I've um, interviewed uh, survivors from. And and what happened in this particular attack, this was in a Central African country, and there were some jihadists, and they were moving down towards the capital. And their goal was to set up their own caliphate, their own Islamic republic, essentially divide the nation into two. And so these jihadists were moving down. Uh, going from village to village, oftentimes targeting Christians. And they came to this particular village, and they attacked during the morning. Uh, They shot a lot of the men on site, and the women and their children, uh, when the gunfire started, they fled into the nearby jungle. This is morning time. It's Central Africa. It gets hot. As the day wore on, the children are starting to get hungry. They're starting to get thirsty. Well, by evening time, the the women needed to do something. The kids were crying out because they were so hungry. So the women go back. They decide to go back to the village. They figure the coast is clear. The jihadists, they believed at that time, had moved on to another village. Unfortunately, they got back to their village, and the jihadists were hiding out in their huts. And they systematically raped most of the village. And... um, And I remember talking to one of the survivors, a dear, dear woman, a woman of incredible courage. And she said, in the aftermath of the attack, a a secular humanitarian organization had come in and very bravely did some very good work, um, helped her medically, uh, also helped with some of her emotional symptoms like nightmares. But what the secular organization couldn't do was address the spiritual fallout of what had happened. And one of the things she told me, I'll, I'll never forget this. She, she looked me right in the eyes and she said, I don't think God exists anymore. 
I'm angry at God. And that's what we see happening on the spiritual side of trauma, especially for our brothers and sisters who haven't really been prepared theologically for the impact of this level of suffering. And, and who can blame them? Because who, who can honestly say that they wouldn't be affected spiritually by something like this? And so that's what we see not only here in Africa, but in, in other fields that I've been to, say in South Asia, some of the same stories where folks go through these horrific incidents and they're left up very badly shaken spiritually. Philip, as, as you talk about that lady's experience, how, how hard is it to get people to talk to you I don't know. In in some cultures, you know, the honor shame system is very much like I I can't speak about this terrible thing that happened to me because that's shameful and I don't want anyone to know. Is that true typically in in Africa, or is it a little more easy to get people to say what happened? One of my Congolese colleagues actually told me. He said, "You Americans need to learn how to listen better, and we Africans we need to learn how to speak better." And I think that his, his statement really speaks to some of the shame involved. And that's why when you receive that level of honesty, such as from that woman, it is truly a gift because it's so countercultural. And, and for me, as a counselor, as just a brother in Christ, I just like to sit back and listen and just absorb the whole situation in a small way. Just it. If the brother or sister is willing to share that kind of detail, just be able to sit back and let them process through it. Because it is such a gift to be able to be that witness to such such incredible pain. Let's talk about the trauma, because one of the things that you said when you spoke in chapel last year here at Voice of the Martyrs, and I, I think I'll always remember it, is when you've experienced trauma, if if you don't process that trauma, if you don't deal with that trauma— it's always like it happened yesterday. You, you never get where it was a year ago or 10 years ago. It's always like it happened yesterday. So how do, how do you and how do those you're working with and those you're training, how do you help people like that woman from Central Africa process the trauma and process what's happened to them and be able to move on emotionally and physically and spiritually because it's all connected? I didn't quite grasp this about trauma until one of my colleagues in the States started working at the VA. He was counseling veterans. And this was back in the 1990s, early, actually it was in the early 2000s. And with a greater awareness about PTSD, he said, all of a sudden, I'm getting World War II veterans who've been holding on to this trauma for 50 years. Wow. I said, 50 years? What's going on here? But there's two, two primary parts of the brain that are involved with trauma. There's the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for rational thought. And then there's the amygdala, which is a tiny cluster, almost almond-shaped. And that's the part that's responsible for keeping us alive. It's about keeping our emotions intact. So, so it's going to be what tells us about danger. And what happens during trauma is that those two parts of the brain, they stop talking to each other very well. And so the amygdala is always saying, danger, danger, danger. But the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for rational thought, isn't allowed to kind of put in their input. And so as a result, it's like the person goes through the day feeling like there's always danger lurking around the corner. 
It's almost like a, a fire alarm that just keeps firing and firing all day long, even if the smoke is coming from blocks away. I mean, you can imagine what that must be like living with this alarm saying, danger, 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 when there's really no danger at all. And so what we tried to do is, and, and it's not so much me, I need to give credit to our brothers and sisters in the field who are doing this on a daily basis, our African brothers and sisters who are partnering with, they're bringing this out. They're allowing the person to speak about it. And oftentimes with both grief and trauma, the person needs to speak about it over and over again, almost to normalize what's gone on. And then from there, you can start building in truth. And that's where uh, your scriptural passages, um, in this world, you will have trouble. This is where the truth from scripture can really help restore the connection between those two severed parts of the brain and answer some of those lingering questions, such as this woman in Central Africa had, about why any of this would have happened to begin with. And so it can start restoring her spiritual health as well as her emotional health. Is there a difference in in the healing or in the treatment when you were traumatized as part of a group as opposed to being traumatized as an individual? Like I think of the woman in Central Africa. When, when every woman in the whole village is raped, is there a difference in how they each deal with that trauma? Or is that such an individual thing that it, it really doesn't matter that it happened in a group. Well, the benefit of the group is that you have support that's built in. Uh, and Africans, being a collectivist culture, they will rely on that support, particularly because you're oftentimes not going to have a lot of mental health professionals. The mistake we sometimes make with trauma is we assume that my trauma is the same as your trauma. Let's take something relatively benign but something that could still cause post-traumatic stress. Let's say a bad car accident. You're in a bad car accident. For a moment, you think you might die. Somebody might be sitting in the passenger seat, have the exact same experience, but while you're having nightmares for months afterwards, they might be able to kind of dust themselves off and, and move on with their lives. And so we need to give folks grace to heal on their own timeline lest we invalidate their feelings and only delay the healing process. Are there characteristics that you can tell who's going to dust themselves off and walk away and who's going to really deal with the trauma over a long period of time? Are there personality traits or, or background traits or things that you point to to say, hey, this person probably will have more trouble than this person working through this? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because – since um, since the Gulf Wars, of course, we've learned a lot about PTSD as we've studied veterans. But one of the unexpected benefits of the Gulf Wars is we've also learned a lot about resilience. And resilience is really exciting. And just to, just to give you an example, if you don't mind another example here, I'm going to use a more domestic U.S. example. Uh, many of us were alive during the 9-11 attacks. And as you know, the 9-11 attacks on paper looked like the perfect recipe for something that would, uh, that, that would cause post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, you had these airplanes flying into these buildings. And, and that was especially the case for folks that were living right there in Manhattan when it happened. And so 9-11 happens, and the U.S. government responds by sending an army of psychologists 
to New York City, thinking that there's just going to be this, this huge overflow of folks struggling from PTSD. But, but what happened is he saw these psychologists come to New York City and they were bored because what they discovered is that even though they expected there to be a, a huge, huge wave of, of PTSD, most people did all right. And this is where the, where the study of resilience really kind of went into uh, overdrive. And, and there's a couple of spiritual characteristics of resilience. And, and, and what they've discovered, and I'm putting these in spiritual terms, is that the people who tend to do better in the face of, of really bad things. And remember, some of the things that predispose us to developing PTSD or, or really severe trauma is going to be genetic. We can't control a lot of these things. Or maybe... We were sexually abused growing up. Maybe we've seen a lot of things growing up and we're just coming from a place where we're a lot more wounded when the next sort of uh, incident happens. But what they've discovered is that resilient people, first of all, tend to come through a situation like the 9-11 attacks with a degree uh, of optimism. They say something to the effect, that was hard, but but I can do it. My life isn't over. And, and, and this is really kind of along the lines of what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Okay, so that's a resilient attitude. We also see confidence in their ability to cope. They say, yeah, I can, in fact, get through this. I've, I've been through difficult situations in the past. And once again, quoting the Apostle Paul, that's where we go to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 12, 10, where he says, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And finally, they see that incident, that, that potentially traumatic incident as a challenge, something for which they can grow through. And this is where we go into Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So these are three attributes they've discovered are are really kind of hallmarks of resilient people. We're going to have to cut into the conversation right there, but we're not done. Next week, we're going to pick back up. I'm going to ask Brother Philip whether believing in Jesus is likely to make a person more resilient. In the meantime, would you pray for brothers and sisters who are going through pain and trauma? Ask God to lead them to complete healing. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecuted.